This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Hi, everybody. Welcome again to Recovery Radio. My name is Steve Martirano. This is where we uh, set up shop and talk about the disease of addiction and the road to recovery. It's all sponsored by Retreat Behavioral Health, and we'll have more about that uh, that subtle name change and some expanded services straight ahead from Retreat. Uh, we, we have uh, once again reached out to them for uh, one of their expert people because we're going to touch upon a topic that we, I think, frankly, if I can confess, have not spent enough time dealing with here on Recovery Radio uh, at this point in the discussion of uh, substance abuse and the, in particular the opioid epidemic, a lot of time understandably has been spent on harm reduction because that's sort of the mode we're in now. We, we're going to uh, step back now and and uh, and, and take, a, uh, I like to say, a deep dive on the psychology of addiction. Put another way, and I hear this all the time, when you talk to people about this disease, they go, why do they keep why do they act like that? What are they thinking about? Well, it's a great question, and it's a fair question. Okay. And to that end, we have uh, invited to join us on Recovery Radio for this program, Dr. Brian Berman. Dr. Berman is a licensed clinical psychologist. He's uh, uh, on staff here full-time at Retreat, and he has his own private practice. We're, I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, uh, Brian, thanks for joining us on Recovery Radio. Yeah, thank you for having me. Can you, can you give us just a thumbnail of uh, your educational background and your, and your, uh, your practice? Uh, sure. So I received a master's degree in clinical psychology at Westchester University, so pretty local around the area, uh, with a, a, a focus in cognitive behavioral th- therapy, so CBT. Uh, I also received a doctoral degree at LaSalle University, uh, again, uh, again local, and with a focus in cognitive behavioral therapy, more specifically there in mindfulness and acceptance-based treatments, which we often call uh, the third wave of CBT. Um, so, so I had the opportunity to, to do my doctoral program there. I was very lucky to do some rotations around the area. I did a rotation at the Center for Cognitive Therapy, which is Aaron Beck's uh, center, the, the, the father of cognitive therapy. So that was really special for me. Uh, I've had the opportunity to work uh, in, at, at Hahnemann and Drexel Campus Counseling Centers, working with uh, young folks with addiction, um, doing uh, uh, community mental health centers, working in addiction, running IOP groups. Uh, later on after that in my career, I started a rehab after work, uh, doing co-occurring uh, groups, IOP groups, aftercare groups, working individually with patients, um, and, and now lucky enough to be at retreat uh, where I do diagnostic evaluations and work day-to-day with those patients. I also have a private practice you would mention in Bryn Mawr uh, where I work where I work with both um, those coming in with psychological, so mental health disorders, with uh, difficulties with addiction, uh, co-occurring, especially for those that are trying to figure out how do they manage their thoughts and feelings in a way where they're not escaping with drugs and alcohol, uh, amongst a a, a lot of other patients I work with there as well. And how old are you? Uh, I am 41 years old. Okay. Uh, I ask that because I'm guessing that... um, uh, psychology in the treatment of addiction mm-hmm. is a relatively new field, relatively speaking. Is that true? Is psychology in the field of addiction a relatively new? Um, I don't know that it's necessarily new. Mm-hmm. 
Um, did you start? I mean, did you start out with with an emphasis on on that? That's what you would. I didn't start on? out with an emphasis to focus on addiction. So uh, when I went into it, it was not as though I had a major personal experience that kind of launched me in that direction. What I found was that I went on uh, different rotations, and I just got the exposure, especially to young people with addiction, and I found that to be really fulfilling. Uh, what I also found was that the particular kind of treatments that I do, one that I specifically do called acceptance and commitment therapy, better known as ACT, uh, seem to work really well with those who have an addiction, particularly because it can treat uh, 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 people co-occurringly, and, and so much of what I see are co-occurring yeah, disorders. Yeah. Well, we're going to dig very deeply into the different uh, techniques to treat uh, mm-hmm. addiction uh, psychologically, because like everything else that is associated with uh, substance abuse, one size does not fit all. That's right. And uh, we're all pragmatists on this bus. Mm-hmm. So whatever works, works. Um, so did I did I get it right for the, for the lay persons looking from the outside into this problem, trying to get their head around why do people make these choices? Why are they behaving that way? Let's 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 begin there. Is, is that is that the right question to ask uh, psychologically about somebody uh, who's abusing substances? I think it is. I think that it's a fair question to try to figure out what is going on. Why do people uh, get so locked into addiction and why can't they escape the process of it? Uh, you know, I could just say this. I could say that addiction uh, is more complex and I think in some ways it's more simple, but it's a really complex thing uh, in that uh, it's multifaceted, right? It's got genetic and biological components to it. It's got psychological and behavioral parts to it. It's got contextual pieces, uh, familial pieces. Like it's a, it's a really complex event. Um, uh, but if I'm going to speak to the cognitive and the behavioral uh, pieces to it, I think that one of the most important uh, components that underlie and maintain addiction is a process called experiential avoidance. Okay? Very simply put, what experiential avoidance is is our unwillingness to experience private internal events. Our thoughts, our feelings, our sensations, our flashbacks, our nightmares, any of that kind of stuff that pops up. Um, is that another way of saying denying what's going on in your life, just avoiding uh, it? Just, just avoiding it. Yeah, avoiding it's in the name, experiential avoidance. It's, it's what you see typically when, when you have somebody using drugs and alcohol who suppress. Mm-hmm. They try to suppress those feelings. Of course, drugs aren't the only way to do it, but, but that's a major way to do it, is to suppress those feelings. Uh, and anybody who's worked in addiction sees that, can probably speak to that, that we suppress and numbness gave feelings. It's just that there's a very particular name to that, and that is called experiential avoidance. Um, it, 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 I'm guessing it works. Yeah, uh, it works on an unconscious level as well. You don't you don't realize that you're doing this. You don't realize you're doing it. It's very unconscious uh, because all, all a person is trying to do is just feel better, right? And so when they use something like drugs or alcohol that takes away that aversive internal experience, they've found this recipe to feel better. And it works. As I said to you earlier, uh, uh, people wouldn't do it if it didn't work because it reduces that feeling in the short run. The problem is that in the long run, those things come back with a major vengeance. Well, then the other aspects of this complicated disease that you mentioned earlier kick in that you're not aware of. You're absolutely right. I've talked Mm -hmm. to hundreds of people who have been uh, uh, abusing substances, and they I always like to say every story of substance abuse and recovery is the same, except they're different. Right, the the right. things that keep coming up is there's this, there's this almost universal, I never felt right mm-hmm. from the earliest time. Right. I, and they can't define it any better. I never felt right. And almost as universal uh, was the expression that the minute I tried XYZ, I felt better. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. And, and I think what they're saying by that is there is this internal experience whether those are emotional states or mood states or just racing thought there's something inside of them that feels uh, uh uncomfortable and they're just looking for a way to feel comfortable so they can interact with the world uh, and so when they use the drugs and alcohol when they quote unquote say well i'm having fun what they really mean to say is i don't feel anxious now uh, or i don't feel shameful now or i'm not worrying about work and this kind of thing now the interesting thing about that is that this experiential avoidance, as we're describing the suppression of these feelings, isn't just true for addiction. It's also true for many uh, uh, psychological disorders, if not most psychological disorders. Because if you think about it, drugs and alcohol are just one form of avoidance and escaping. Mm -hmm. Just one form. Mm -hmm. You could have somebody who's not addicted at all uh, uh, who decides to avoid and escape their feelings by isolating and sleeping and not answering the phone and cutting themselves off. So we usually call these people depressed. Yes, or anger. Um, or anger. An anger. Um, so, so, it's, so it's fascinating. So, so what separates um, the, the, the substance abuser or the person who winds up with a, a full-blown addiction uh, is, not, is, is their decision to alleviate those almost normal and universal feelings that we all can have with a substance that winds up overwhelming them. Is, is that this, the essential difference? Everybody has to deal with these emotions that are suppressed. Mm -hmm. they de we deal with it in different ways. Yes. The person who unfortunately says, oh, I feel better when I smoke marijuana and then winds up addicted to heroin, right. has, has unfortunately fallen into... I don't even want to say a trap. You're right. Nobody it goes. Is a trap. Nobody goes. I think I'll become an addict. Right, 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 right. And you never know that you're going to wind up that way until you do. But it is a trap because it's very unconscious, right? What happens is that uh, they get negatively reinforced, meaning that uh, whatever aversive state is removed and it increases behavior. That's called negative reinforcement, removal of something aversive in order to decrease behavior. So here the aversive thing is the internal state, the anxiety, the, the, anxiety, the feelings right. of shame, that kind of thing. And so by using drugs and alcohol, they can, in the short run, remember, it's effective in the short run, it removes that state, and they feel much better, which means that they learn the next time that the way to feel better is to engage in this behavior. And so they do get locked into this unconscious process of negative reinforcement where they're removing this aversive state and the behavior keeps increasing and increasing. Brian Berman is our guest on Recovery Radio today. Uh, Brian is a, uh, um, a licensed clinical psychologist. He's here uh, to you know, put us in the mind, as it were, of someone in, in the throes of a uh, serious addiction. Um, I have so many, so many questions here. We got a minute here in this segment before we have to take our first break. So, so these feelings that are really the root source of substance uh, abuse, or can be the root source that we all have these these feelings we're not even aware of. Um, you 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 wind up having to bring those up into consciousness after the addiction has taken hold. When we talk to our our children about about drug use and everything. Would it be wiser, if I understand you psychologically, to be talking to those children not so much about, ooh, the dangers of drugs, which is important, but how do you feel? Does it make more sense to tell kids, find out how they feel rather than scare them not going to use drugs? 100%. 100%. 
one of the uh, things that, that that can really uh, set up the context for addiction is is family invalidation. It's it's the ones who say uh, uh, children should be seen and not heard, or put you know never cry and that kind of thing. Because uh, what it says is that my internal state is not appropriate. I'm not supposed to feel this way. And so it sets up the context for now figuring out how to live life not feeling. After all, if, if most people who wind up in, uh, in uh, full-blown addiction uh, share this feeling of not fitting or hollowness or uh, anxiety, the first place they didn't fit was at home. Yeah, very likely. Yeah, Brian Berman is our guest. He is a uh, psychologist, and we're talking about the psychology of addiction here on Recovery Radio. Don't go away. Welcome back to Recovery Radio. Steve Martirano is my name. We, uh, we're here talking about the disease of addiction. Retreat Behavioral Health, our sponsor uh, from their uh, psychology department of licensed clinical psychologist, Dr. Brian Berman is with us uh, to help us understand what's, what's going on in the minds of people who are in uh, the grip of uh, a serious uh, a serious addiction, uh, addiction, the psychology of addiction, the topic on Recovery Radio. Um, Brian, let's let's take a little closer look at these uh, the the expression used behavioral or experiential avoidance, mm-hmm. the, the feelings that we suppress, yeah. the feelings that we're not even aware that we have, that we wind up if if we're unlucky enough uh, self medicating through the abuse of drugs and alcohol. Mm-hmm. Th- th- those feelings are there very early on in our life. We we mentioned that. One of the things parents are are most concerned about, in my experience, is well, how do I differentiate? Between my my children um, being just normally moody and strange and potential problems that might come up later in their lives. Is there any good way to tell parents what to look for? Well, I would say, first off, we don't want to pathologize everything, mm-hmm. right? There, there, there's a natural developmental uh, trajectory where kids are going to and teenagers are going to act in ways that we as adults uh, wish they wouldn't, right? Uh, and there's exploration and that kind of thing. Uh, I think what you want to look at, uh, as you want to look at with anybody who is experiencing difficulties or disorder or addiction, is how badly is it impacting their life? Um, so if you have children who, or, or adolescents who are acting in a certain way, take a look at how is it impacting their life? Is it just impacting school? Is it impacting the family environment? Uh, is their physical and emotional well-being being impacted? Because if that's the case, then perhaps it really is something that we want to help work on. We want to help them uh, figure out how to um, be more open in terms of what their emotional in, their in, their experiences internally, so that they're not always trying to avoid and escape these things, which later on can lead to an addiction. Uh, because there's a real developmental uh, uh, trajectory to even experiential avoidance. Somebody who is feeling emotionally, mentally, physically unsettled inside themselves and is given the message that I'm not supposed to feel this way is going to trigger, try to figure out how to not feel that way. And so as we were saying before, Ofer, uh, you may find yourself uh, isolating more. Uh, you may find yourself sleeping the day away, not even facing it. You may find yourself if, you know, potentially cutting to distract from whatever internal states are there. You mean physically cut? Physically cut myself so that I can focus on the physical pain as a way to distract and avoid the internal experience. That is one of the functions of cutting or, or self-harm in general. 
and, and what happens is that when you that that it keeps building up until drugs and alcohol a person's at at a point in their life where that's available to them, and that seems to do it in a much more effective way than some of these other uh, these other behaviors do. And so then you wind up people getting cooked, uh, hooked into drugs and alcohol, and then it gets maintained for a whole host of reasons. Mm-hmm. But I think you can see that developmental trajectory sure. happening in yeah. that fashion. Well, I I don't know whether you're in a position to answer this, but psychologically, uh, what differentiates uh, uh, someone who is a, uh, who feels the way you described, who's having those emotional difficulties, but doesn't self-medicate or cut or, or or look for substances to make it go away, and the other person who is sort of able to handle it? Yeah. Uh, I, I, again, like I said, addiction uh, or, or, or even emotions are a multifaceted thing. There's so many components to it, right? Uh, so you have people who perhaps have a biological predisposition to be able to manage these things better. You have somebody who is able to be more present uh, just naturally and accepting of their own feelings and less judgmental, freeing them up uh, uh, to not need to escape. You have buffers in family uh, that can provide the kind of emotional support and, and just even being present. Being present is like half the battle. Being, Explain what, being present. What, being present for your, for, for your son, your daughter, your family, mm-hmm. just being there yeah. without even doing anything is half the battle, I think, uh, to validating to somebody's experience and letting them know, wow, I'm important to this person and they care about what my experience is. Uh, the other thing I would say is that um, um, for whatever reason, some people are much more natural at being able to focus life decisions based on the kind of people they want to be in life. Sometimes we call that values rather than uh, needing to feel better. And there's always that balance there, that choice. Uh, sometimes we call it a choice point. Of, Am I going to make a decision based on the kind of person I want to be? Or based on the need to feel better. Yeah. And, and you can't do both at the same time. Yeah. So some people are just naturally better at making that choice in that direction. Or don't see the dilemma in it. Or not even presently aware to know. So th- yeah. I'm smiling because uh, very frequently you'll see someone in a movie or someone go, who told you you're supposed to be happy? Right. And, and they're always <laughs> and they're always uh, sort of cast in the light of, wow, that's, that's a pretty, pretty bummed out way to think. Uh-huh. And maybe it's not. Right. I mean, yeah, you, you'd like to be happy, but if, if you're not happy, then, you know, figure out why not, Yeah. rather than go, gee, i got to be happy. So uh, do I hear you say then, because that, that, that in your view as a uh, clinician, it, there, is a, uh, there is something to the notion that there is a, a personality that's predisposed to, to addiction, and there's a personality that's not pre. in other words, I'm not an addictive kind of person. Is it is that a, a real thing? I think there are predispositions, and I think uh, genetically and otherwise for addiction. I but coming from a um, psychological or behavioral perspective, I think the predisposition comes in the inability to regulate feelings. And if I don't know what to do with those feelings, then I have to figure out how to avoid and escape them. And it sets us up for a line, a trajectory of yeah. uh, I manage life through escape. Yeah, we don't have any evidence that there is an addiction gene. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm not into the research of yeah, that. Yeah, I don't think we do, but right. we do see it run in families. Mm-hmm. And uh, what's interesting about that, and maybe you can take a moment to talk about it, it never seems to be, or very rarely seems to be a bar to people. They may know that this is going on in the family, alcoholism or something. Mm-hmm. But if 
but they head down that road anyway. That's psychologically kind of weird, isn't it? Um, Why wouldn't it be a warning sign for them? That 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 they themselves might be addiction might, might, might be, be in, right. in, in danger. Um, well, you have to understand what a, you know. Somebody who is a young person growing up isn't going to understand uh, perhaps the warning signs. They're just trying to survive their life, as we all are. And I don't mean survive a traumatic life. I mean just trying to survive growing up without a rule book of how to do it. Um, but off just off the top of my head, the two things that stand out for me is one modeling is a very important thing when you watch um the old bobo experiments and children watch bobo dolls and uh you hit the bobo doll the children are much more likely to just do what they see and so we as people are much more likely to reenact or do what we see Uh, but the other thing i would say is that growing up in a family with perhaps addiction and emotion regulation difficulties is trauma trauma is so Important when we're talking about addiction because trauma trauma can do two things. First of all, depending on how bad the trauma is, it can actually alter your central nervous system. If it's repetitive, complex uh, trauma from a very young age, uh, and it creates all kinds of emotional experiences, uh, including shame, which we try to hide. Mm -hmm. And so we're already hiding. We're already escaping and avoiding. And so it's almost like a replaying of avoidance. We've got family members who are older than us who are escaping and avoiding their internal experiences through drugs and alcohol. And that causes trauma to us. And now we have no choice but to figure out how to avoid ours, especially if we have people neglecting it and not telling us how to manage it. I want to pick up on that trauma uh, notion straight ahead. And I also want to, we've sort of defined the terms very, very uh, broadly here. Now I'd like to take a look at, so, okay, that's what it is. Let's talk about how someone like you treats the disease of addiction psychologically. Psychology of addiction, that's what we're talking about on Recovery Radio. We have more with uh, Dr. Brian Berman, so don't go away. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Recovery Radio. We will uh, return to our guest, uh, Dr. Brian Berman, straight ahead. But I want to remind you that um, any questions or comments you have about anything you've heard on the program or, in fact, anything in your life that has been impacted by the disease of addiction, I will give you the phone number for Retreat Behavioral Health. And um, I I tell you this all the time. This is a resource number. Uh, Peter Shore, who's the founder and CEO of the company, um, hopes you never have to call this number. But uh, if you do, there's going to be somebody at the other end of the line who can give you uh, really solid information. If Retreat can help you, they will. If they if they can't, they'll direct you somewhere else. They will help you. So, again, I give you the phone number, and my, my, uh, my absolute hope is that you never need it. But in a crunch, it could be important to have somebody to talk to. 855-859-8808. 855-859-8808. Retreat Behavioral Health. Brian Berman has uh, been our guest. He is a, a licensed clinical psychologist working here at Retreat. He also is in private practice, and he's been getting us uh, as close as I've ever been to the inside mm-hmm. of someone's mind who is uh, trapped in the disease of addiction. He um, he, he treats uh, psychologically uh, people with uh, with uh, substance abuse uh, issues, and that's what I want to talk about here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so. Do people come in, sit on your couch, and do that whole Freud thing, or how do you how do you treat this? Um, yeah, well, minus the couch, I don't have a couch in my office, uh, but uh, and it depends where whether it's at retreat or at my private practice. So at retreat, I much more of a, I do much more diagnostic evaluations uh, where the patients come in. 
uh, and I help provide a diagnosis, which can be really helpful for medical providers and or if the patient needs it for a therapeutic um, uh, direction and so on and so forth. Yeah, that uh, yeah. evaluation is a critical part of yeah. uh, getting the right care when you're in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and then um, – and so I do do some individual therapy at retreat. It has been less, I would say, lately. Uh, in, in my private practice, then, yeah, I'm using uh, a lot of interventions where we are sitting one-on-one and really trying to help the person build an awareness to how they are avoiding and escaping their feelings, engaging that experiential avoidance so that we can uh, alter that pattern and get them in a much more adaptive pa- way of being. Now, I know no one-size-fits-all uh, no one here now, but th- can you describe some of the modalities? I mean, is, is, is it the... Uh is it a dialectic question answer, role playing? What what kinds of tools do you use? Uh, well, I mean, because I, I integrate a lot of different treatments, I'd say I'd say it's all mm-hmm. really. So, I mean, the the main treatment that I use is acceptance and commitment therapy, better known as ACT. Uh, and I can speak about that in a moment, but it's not the only one. There's a lot of good ones. I use a lot of emotion-focused therapy where you do empty chair dialogue and the person kind of goes back and forth between chairs and talks to different uh, internal as- different sides of themselves, if you will, uh, or, or to somebody else in their life. Um, use some dialectical behavior therapy in order to help uh, with distress tolerance skills and getting pers- people through difficult moments of emotions. How does uh, that work? This specific. What, what, so I'm your patient. Yeah. You're going to take take me through this process of asking me questions in order to what? Is, is that how, how would that work? So if the person's coming into therapy, and again, there's no cookie cutter. Right. Right. Uh, it really depends on what their goals are and and where they're at. But the very first thing that I'm trying to build is awareness. Awareness of whatever it is they're coming, because there's no change without awareness. Uh, Don't they pretty much know why they're there? I mean... They know they want to feel better. They know they want to feel better. So in other words, right, uh, uh, most people coming into my office feel bad. They have been avoiding and numbing and escaping in one way or another. If it's uh, an addiction, they're doing it through drugs and alcohol. If it's a mental health disorder, they're doing it through another way. But they're all just trying to figure out how do I feel better. Uh, and so then they finally come into me, the expert, and say, you know, these things are failing because escape doesn't work. I want you to teach me how to escape and feel better in the healthy way. Well, I, you know, do more of the same, you get the same results. So they, they, they want to feel better, they want to feel happy, uh, but they're not necessarily aware that doing the same thing in my office isn't going to work. And so it's my job to teach them what's preventing them from being happy, which is actually the process of trying to escape those uncomfortable thoughts and feelings. Uh, We're going to, in other words, yeah, that didn't work. This is not another one of those techniques. You're here to look at them. That's right. And it's a very nuanced way because uh, to say to somebody that uh, you're here not to learn how to feel better, but to learn how to feel bad, to learn how to feel bad with your feelings in a way that it frees you to live the kind of life you want to live, not just to feel bad, but because it's important to be in line with your values. Uh, And and that's a very nuanced thing because it comes with uh, facing a lot of stuff that people have been bearing for a long time. Yeah, it also sounds counterintuitive. What do you mean I'm here to learn how to feel good? Right, right, right. I'm feeling bad pretty good without your help. That's right. Yeah, that's right. In fact, they're not. They're not really. What they're feeling is uh, um, the consequence of trying to escape feeling bad. In in acceptance and commitment therapy, we call that the difference between clear pain versus muddy pain. So clear pain would be the initial 
uh, emotional experience you have in any life circumstance, right? So I get fired from a job. Oh my God, I feel, you know, ashamed and worthless or whatever. That, that's clear pain, meaning that uh, 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 something bad happens. You're going to feel a feeling. And it makes sense. And it makes sense. And it makes it. You're supposed to feel that way. That's right. not a bad thing. That's 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 a normal thing. Now, if I don't like that feeling, I'm going to try to avoid or escape it. I go to the bar, I isolate, I do whatever it is that I do to try to avoid that feeling. And like we said before, it works. Otherwise, people wouldn't do it. It's, that's what's so reinforcing the short run. But in the long run, when they do that, then they feel more shame. They feel guilt and they have anxiety and nothing has improved. And so they have this new level of pain on top of the old one. And when they get mixed together, it gets muddied up. And so they wind up what people come into the office is they're connected with their muddy pain, all the consequences of their escape. They haven't, they're not even in touch with the thing they were originally trying to run from. No, because of the, the, their behavior is taken over and obscured the problems. The behavior's taken over. It's obscured the problem. It's muddied the whole situation up. That stuff has come to such an overwhelming state that I say, I now I have to go see somebody, right? And yeah, and, I'm here to see you because I because I, right. I'm using drugs. That's right. Or I'm, I'm drinking. And now you have to teach me how to stop feeling bad, and then I can stop using drugs. And I'm saying, well, you're feeling bad because of all the ways you've been escaping those thoughts and feelings, and which drugs is just one of those. And so what we actually have to get you to do is get in contact with the feelings you're running from and learn how to feel those feelings. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, yeah, go ahead. No, uh, the the great big buzzword now psychologically Uh is mindfulness. Absolutely. Tell us about mindfulness. Uh, Yeah, that is the big buzzword. Everybody's using it. Uh, and I think the reason is it's because it's actually pretty good. Uh, mindfulness can be very, very effective. Uh, we use that also in acceptance and commitment therapy. Because um, if you think about if experiential avoidance or, again, the unwillingness to experience internal states is the thing that develops and maintains addiction, then we probably want to do the opposite. We want to get people to be more accepting of those thoughts and feelings. And mindfulness is a way, a tool to help us to get people to be more accepting. So just by showing up and being present to those feelings, you are being more accepting. Just by showing up to, 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 to suffering of some kind, you're also being compassionate. So it provides a sense of self-compassion uh, as well. Now, um, for, for, for acceptance and commitment therapy, we don't just do mindfulness for mindfulness sake. We do it because to be present with uncomfortable feelings means that you get to have something important in life. It's always in the context of values. Because why am I going to sit with all traumas and all pains that I've been running for my whole life, unless I know that this is really important, I'm something I'm going to gain from it. Maybe it's finally the kind of son or daughter I want to be. How, how do you or, make somebody aware of that? Uh, so you very much have to help them clarify their values. So if we want to get into ACT a little bit, ACT does a couple of things. It's in the name. One is uh, you are helping the individual become accepting of their feelings because it specifically targets experiential avoidance, right? So acceptance, uh, so that it can free them to moving towards the kind of person they want to be their values. Uh, So we want people committing to making decisions based on values. That's acceptance and commitment therapy. Now, in order to help them understand values, we help them clarify those values. What is the kind of person you want to be in life? Especially if these things you're escaping weren't even there. What's the life direction you want to take? Do you want to be a trustworthy kind of person? Do you want to be the kind of person who can handle conflict or hold boundaries or just have relationships? Whatever these things are, this is the stuff that I've come to therapy for because this is, I'm missing this. It's an empty existence without living in accordance with my values. And in order to do that, I have to be willing to accept these feelings so I can move towards that. Uh-huh. 
And and when or at what point or if ever does um, cognitive behavioral therapy come to play here? As I understood, that is change the way you think and that'll change the way you act or do I have it backwards? Uh, no, 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 you have it correct. Uh, and, and what we're talking about is a form of cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, so ACT along with uh, other treatments like DBT and mindfulness-based cognitive therapy and these kinds of things are all what we call the third wave of CBT. Uh, so the second wave of CBT, which is Becky and CBT, the uh, I have some sort of erroneous or bad thought, I alter that thought, uh, that makes me feel better, and then I have more adaptive behavior patterns. And they're very diagnostically specific. They're syndrome-focused uh, treatment packages. Here's a treatment package for depression. Here's a treatment package for anxiety. Uh, and it's all about making the feeling go away get the bad anxiety to go away and I'll do better, get the bad, uh, you know, the shame to go away. So these ones are a little bit different. They're still cognitive behavioral therapy, but this is more focused on being a, a transdiagnostic approach. So for example, ACT is a transdiagnostic approach. What that means is that it treats multiple diagnoses at the same time. It's not focused on a specific pigeonhole diagnosis, right? Um, which means it's great for co-occurring disorders. Now, the reason it can do that is because it targets this underlying mechanism, this experiential avoidance that crosses across uh, uh, um, diagnoses, So, which is a, actually a really good thing because rather than trying to treat 10 things, right, we mm -hmm. can treat one thing that cuts across that's done in like 10 different – that's done in 10 different ways. Dr. Brian Berman is our guest. Uh, we're talking about the psychology of addiction here on Recovery Radio. We have more. Don't go away. We'll be back. We're back with our guest, Dr. Brian uh, Berman here on Recovery Radio. Uh, I want to thank him uh, as we finish up here because this has been uh, terrific and just the, the tip of the iceberg to uh, – to use a cliche here, um, you know, what goes on in our our minds uh, is fascinating, um, even when you're not talking about a, a disease like, like addiction. And it's always, I find it always insightful to have somebody in who, who does this for a living. So I really thank you for that. Uh, so, uh, Brian, you know, like I said, this is a fascinating trip through the processes and the functions and what's going on in the mind of people who unfortunately find themselves abusing substances and can't do anything about it. Um, you talked about some of the ways you, you, you treat this, uh, this disease that often co-occurs, the mental health aspect with substance abuse. I'm struck by uh, this question of choice, though. I want to get back to that because all through the process you described in treating um, these problems in, in addiction, uh, people have to make choices. They they have to make choices, even if it's depression, uh, anxiety. Um, you still have to, you know, make a choice at some point that you're going to deal with it. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet, we are we are always told from the outside anyway. Well, you've got no choice over these things. You're now in the control of these things. So, if you would spend a couple of minutes here, and uh, if you, if you would, and talk about the role of choice in not only the addiction model, but also in, in getting sober. What what choice do we have? Yeah, I, I think that that we do have choice in how we want to approach uh, life in general, whether that's mental health or addiction. And I understand what people are saying in the, in the manner that we don't have choice, uh, because uh, in many aspects, you don't have choice as an addiction. It's a, but, but it's not as black and white as that, right? We all got to kind of live in the gray a little bit. 
uh, on a macro level, you don't have a choice in terms of your makeup and who you are and what you do necessarily in your in your own personal history. But uh, in a micro way, from moment to moment, we certainly have choice in how we want to be. Uh, and the more awareness we have uh, in the moment, the more choice we have. It's interesting because at retreat, I say we do acceptance and commitment therapy, but we actually do a particular model of acceptance and commitment therapy called the choice point model. And what that means is that we're helping patients build awareness of their emotional states in the moment, how to be present using mindfulness, as we talked about before, with those emotional states, so much so that they can free themselves to make a choice based on the kind of person they want to be in that moment. And they're small bricks, small steps on the road of life. The small choices are very, very important. And we're not saying that we have a choice that's going to change the whole game, but, but, but as long as it moves them in the correct direction of where they want to go, I think they do have those choices. And... Uh Correct me if I'm wrong. One one of the uh, key moments in in that process that you just described is when someone, even if they are profoundly in the grip mm-hmm. of uh, a co-occurring disorder and, and addiction, th- when they say, I, I've got to try something else, and they get themselves in front of a professional or into a treatment, that's a, that's, that's a choice, that, that, and that's a key moment, right? That is absolutely a choice. And when you say that, what I hear is it has come to such a point that the individual is saying that uh, I'm losing total sense of who I am and what I value, so much so that I'm willing to experience the uncomfortable feeling of relying and being dependent on others, maybe saying I'm powerless, whatever it is, and going into a treatment center. It's a very, very anxiety-provoking, uncomfortable thing to do because I know something I value so much called recovery and getting my life back that I'm willing to experience these feelings. Yeah, so it's uh, ironic that your efforts, psychological efforts, are to get people to that point. 100%. And unfortunately for people in real crisis, they have to go through all that trauma before they can go, there's got to be some better way for me to live. I'm not happy. That's right. We want to catch them much further down the line where they can be much more mindful uh, that 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 there are these values in their life that it doesn't have to come to such a head before they realize, well, I have to make this drastic change uh, in order to be back in line with what I value. And if they can be mindful of the feelings that are popping up before they become too overwhelming and begin to make choices based on the kind of people they want to be from moment to moment, again, at a more micro than macro level, uh, then we're putting the bricks on their road in the direction that hopefully they're going to they're gonna want to take to be a healthy individual. And Brian, thanks so much. Uh, again, this is one of the rare opportunities where we, we talk, we, we've been able to talk about the origins of this mm-hmm. problem um, rather than where we are today, which is unfortunately in, in an overwhelmingly harm reduction mode. Too many people are dying. Too many people are unhappy and broken, and there's not a lot of time to sit and reflect on where did this come from. Uh, that's what you do, uh, and I'm particularly grateful for your advice for people out there about your kids. Uh, yeah, you can tell them drugs are bad, and that's a perfectly appropriate thing to do, but ask them every now and then how they're feeling. Yeah, 100%. I agree. Yes. How you doing? Uh, thanks again so much. You come back again. You've been hiding now for five years on this radio program. I can't believe I haven't had you here before. Brian Berman, uh, Th- thanks so much. We appreciate your time. Thank you very much. I enjoyed Th- being here. Thank you for your time as well. Uh, and uh, keep us in mind, Recovery Radio, where, wherever 
finer podcasts can be heard, you will uh, be able to access us. Take care. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management.